I think in studying religion in particular, you know, applying that principle, the principle of change over time, and the principle also that change is something that can be known, that we study, that it's understandable and comprehensible. Change just doesn't happen willy-nilly, that there are certain um, logics of change, and those logics can be known. That, I think, as I turn to the history of religion, and the history, perhaps, of the Church of Jesus Latter-day Saints has been very illuminating because I approach that history with the premise that change is going to happen, um, that change is built into the system, that it's a principle of the system. And I think so much of the grapple that so many people have with the history of the Church, so much of the anxiety that produces it is, in fact, derived from change, right? And wondering, why does change happen? Why is the church today not the same as it was in the time of Joseph Smith? Why were people doing weird things that we don't do anymore, right? And for me, I'm approaching this as a historian, I presume that that's going to happen. I, I think yeah, change is inevitable. The only question is, why? Glad to be able to share this episode of The Cultural Hall with you. I'm excited about this project with the University of Illinois Press. Uh, Sounds like it's going to be just an amazing series. Uh, We go into great depth as to what the uh, foundations of this series are all about, but look forward to many, many interviews talking about uh, different thought leaders within the Mormon thought. Not necessarily the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints thought, but Mormon thought as we explore each of these different characters. Today, just where the setup is, the foundation. I'm glad that I was able to be connected with these two gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall, and I am excited for this. It's three of us here in the Cultural Hall, and we're talking to, and I wish I had timpanies or coronets about a new series. I'll do my best. Introductions to Mormon thought. I'm joined by Matthew Bowman, who is the Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies at Claremont Graduate University, and I'm also also joined by Joseph M. Spencer, a assistant professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University. Welcome, you guys, to the Cultural Hall. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thank you. Now, uh, instantly, there will be some, and I don't agree with these folks, but there are some who go, Mormon thought? I thought this is Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints thought, Matt and Joseph. Is this, is this book a win for Satan? I would be curious, uh, Matt, why don't you tell us why it's going to be called uh, Introductions to Mormon Thought? For the same reason that my chair is still called the Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies, and there are two primary reasons. Uh, the first is, quite simply, that we hope the series will encompass people beyond the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, That is, we have a book underway on Joseph Smith III, um, son of Joseph Smith Jr., who was the founding prophet of the reorganized church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints today, Community of Christ. Um, Similarly, there is a book under contract on Joseph Musser, um, who was excommunicated from the LDS church and became really the most prominent theologian of the fundamentalist church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, That is, the series will encompass people beyond simply the major LDS church. Um, Second reason, 
There's a lot of books underway on people from the 19th century, people who called themselves Mormons, who used the word Mormon to describe what it was they were doing, who saw themselves as advocates of Mormonism. So there is, I think, in that sense, both a historical and a sociological reason why we chose the word Mormon. We did think about that, right? That was a question that we considered before we made the choice to leave it. And I just bring that up to uh, to clear the air so that when people hear it, they go, okay, this is the scope of the project. There are some people who I don't feel like allow themselves to get a step further. If they hear something like that, they go, oh, I'm out. It must be something that I you know, shouldn't or wouldn't pay attention to. Um, I'm just going to, ju- as we talk today, I'm going to volley questions back and forth between the two of you. If one of you is suited better to answer the question, you can say, hey, Joseph, I got this one, Matt, or... Matt, I got this one if, uh, if Joseph, you'd prefer to answer this question as well. It, it is a series, then, of books. It is not uh, a, a series as in uh, within the, the confines of one book we would read about these different individuals. It's sort of a, a, a collection of sorts. How many books and how will this roll out, Joseph? Uh, well, we'll see exactly how many books. When we first uh, approached the press about it, I think we were talking about a dozen uh, but the, in conversation with the press, that has grown. So um, certainly at least two dozen, uh, maybe beyond that. Um, and so we're really grateful that it actually expanded as big as it did, because uh, since each volume is dedicated to just one figure, right, a book on uh, Lowell Bennion or a book on uh, Eliza Snow, uh, having enough volumes means we can really play around with the shape of this thing a bit. We can take in figures that others uh, might, that, that might generally get ignored. And we can really um, we can really kind of shape the thing as a whole uh, instead of just feeling like we've taken a stab at things. So yeah, a series, uh, each volume on a different person or a different figure from Latter-day Saint intellectual history, uh, but as a whole, hopefully giving a much broader sense for the whole tradition. It's worth the shout out that uh, this the University of Illinois Press that is the press that we're speaking of that is uh, you know kind of putting this thing out and and that it's expanded from twelve to twenty four, but. I hope to get an answer from both of you on this. When you look at the past, there are certainly more than 24 individuals who we should know about and that we should be able to hear their stories. So I would be curious uh, from you, Matt, and then you, Joseph, as we, as you guys have uh, sort of started to select these stories and maybe all of them haven't been selected, like what, what's the hope? Is it we want, we want three from column A, five from column B? How, how is this meted and measured? Yeah, yeah, that that's a really good question, and it's one I think that we we are open to pushing the boundaries of. Um, you know, traditionally, when you think of Mormon thought or more theology, right? Um, you tend to think of academics, people who are sitting in offices writing formal works of theology. Um, and certainly, some of those people are in the series. You know, someone like Eugene England, um, who is going to be the subject of our first book. Um, it does fit that kind of traditional model of a writer and an intellectual, right? But we have, as the series has grown, um, and we'll probably be publishing books through the end of the decade, right? So there's going to be a large number here. Um, we wanted to broaden the scope of what might be called thought, which is why we chose that word instead of Mormon theology, or instead of going with, you know, introductions to Mormon intellectuals, right? Um, there is a book underway on Minerva Teichert, hmm. for instance. Um, our second book is is on Vardis Fisher, who is a novelist. 
Um, right. So we want the scope of what thought is to be broad um, to encompass. I think what a question that we asked ourselves early on is um, who were the people who shaped how Latter-day Saints and other Mormons thought about what the Mormon tradition is? What is Mormonism? How do we think about what Mormonism is? And certainly someone like Minerva Teichert um, has helped a lot of people identify themselves and identify what the tradition is. So we're looking at figures perhaps beyond um, the traditional boundaries. And our, our authors have helped us with that as well. We have solicited and we have picked ourselves some names um, that we wanted books on and we've approached people to write on it. But other um, other figures that will be in the series came to us. And um, we've had authors approach us and say, look, I want to write a book on, for instance, Vardis Fisher. Uh, Michael Austin approached us and, and convinced us that he was a significant enough figure to have a volume on. So there, it's it's a kind of um, collaborative effort, I think, in some ways, between us and the press and our authors. As you're kind of onboarding this project, Joseph, is that is was that your vision in mind? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, the story to tell about how this whole thing began, uh, Matt and I were sitting at Slab Pizza in Provo, <laughs> mm -hmm. as people tend to do in Provo, and uh, and talking together about, uh, I mean, frankly, the need both of us felt for someone to write a good, serious analysis of Bruce R. McConkie's contribution to thought, right? He tends to be treated either simply as an authority or in some circles as a kind of bad guy, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Authoritarian figure or something. And we wanted to say, he's a thinker. He's, he's got these ideas. He's constructing a kind of system. We want someone to write about that. And as we kept talking about that, well, also we need someone to write about so-and-so and someone to write about so-and-so. And that's what developed into this project. And for, yeah, for me, what's so exciting about it and the possibility it opens up is one of just recognizing how broad and complex and uh, and interesting the history of uh, thinkers and thinking is. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a lot going on and the broader and the more um, creatively we can cast that, I think the better we'll have a sense for what it is to be a Latter-day Saint at the beginning of the 21st century. I have to also think that there is a broader interest just in the world, uh, University of Illinois Press to kind of, you know, back this whole thing and say, hey, this is of import and that we want to be able to lend whatever resources that they're doing and being able to do it. Uh, I mean, that to me is significant because 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, I don't know that that, you know, the the story of Joseph Musser would have been something that someone said, get me that story. Let's publish it right away. Right. I mean, that's that's very real as to where we at, where we were at. How, how did it come back from slab pizza in Provo to University of Illinois Press saying, yeah, we'll bite. What is this thing? Yeah, I mean, um, one thing that's very worth saying there is that th there has been a field of Mormon studies in one fashion or another that's been of interest to uh, the larger academic world since, say, the 1960s, 70s, uh, and so on. Uh, and the University of Illinois Press was actually one of the academic presses that got on board early, right? Uh, as early as the 1980s, they were publishing regularly things on Latter-day Saint history and so on. Um, However, uh, some changes happened at that press in particular uh, at such that they lost interest for a time. And when the field sort of erupted in the last 15, 20 years, uh, they uh, came sort of swinging back eventually, uh, thanks especially to Don Durante uh, at first, who was the, the acquisitions editor. She's since moved elsewhere. 
Um, and, uh, and now there's uh, this sort of increased interest and it's really nice to see a press take this on, uh, right? And not, it's obviously there's a general interest that's developed, uh, but it's nice to have a press say, you know what, we wanna kind of plant a flag here, mark out a corner of the academy and say, this needs thinking and we're willing to, to venture, right? So yeah, uh, it's, it's nice to see that development very specifically in Illinois. Yeah, and we can't say enough, I think, good things about First Dawn and now our current editor who's taken over after Dawn, Alison Searing. Um, they've both been very, very supportive. And when we came to them with the proposal for a volume on Joseph Musser, right, they both of them said, yes, let's do it, um, which is, I think, your know, real vote of confidence from them in, first, I think, the the fact that someone like Musser is worth serious analysis, is worth academic study, but also their kind of confidence that the series as a whole will be of interest and there will be people who will buy these books. And certainly it has been a truism um, among many academic presses that, that <laughs> Mormons buy books about themselves, right? <laughs> and, and these books do sell. Um, but also, that, as you said, these books will be of interest to people beyond um, just those who go to the Mormon History Association, right? And, and that's something that we are proud of um, with each of these books, is our authors so far have been really responsive to our desire um, to say that someone like Eugene England should not simply be of interest to his co-religionists, mm -hmm. right? Someone like Eugene England is worth um, attention from people who are not interested in any of the branches of the Mormon tradition, um, that he's a serious writer with things to say about being a Christian in America in the mid 20th century. Um, and there should be people who are interested in that question, um, historians of all sorts who, who might be interested in this volume. When I hear series, I also, my mind wants to um, delicately place them into like unified structure. Like it's books that are going to be 300 pages or less, and they're all going to be different individuals and we'll have them all in chronological order or something like that. Are, are there other things uh, aside from the, each of the, the uh, books in the series uh, to be on, on those um, thinkers, those thought leaders, those, uh, you know, are, are there other unifying factors that we'll see between the different books in the series? Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, we aren't doing it anything like chronological order or anything like that, but the, uh, they'll visually, uh, they'll all look very similar, right? We've got a kind of uh, design that will make them all hold together, but especially the organization of each volume is actually, we've got a prescribed structure. Hmm. So every volume will do the same thing. It'll have five chapters. The first chapter will be a biographical sketch uh, the whole book is not a biography, right? Just the first chapter uh, that lays out, here's the life of this person, kind of where they fit into the landscape and so on. Uh, and then there follow three chapters on major works, major contributions, certain ideas or certain aspects of this individual's thought or contribution. And each author, of course, will decide what those are right here. This is a significant book this person wrote, or this is a significant idea. Uh, and then each will conclude with a kind of a bibliographical survey or a kind of guide to reading, uh, that would be the last chapter. So uh, you're interested in, this is say a volume on Hugh Nibley. So here's how to get started reading Nibley. Hmm. That 19 volume <laughs> collective mm -hmm. nightmare to figure out. So here's where to get started. And here's how to kind of find your way into his thought. They are in that sense, right? True introductions. Um, they're going to be relatively short. Um, each volume is 40 to 45,000 words, which 
we'll bring them in at right around 120 pages or so in print. Um, and each is will have the same title structure as well. The title of each book will be, um, as Joe said, Hugh Nibley, and then colon a Mormon blank. Um, and each author gets to choose. So our Eugene England volume will be called Eugene England, a Mormon liberal, the Vardis Fisher volume, which will be coming out after the England volume, Vardis Fisher, a Mormon novelist, and so on and so on and so on. What a tremendous gift, because... It, you know, if I want to be informed, but maybe I don't want to deep dive on one of these particular, I just want to be aware, I want to know how they fit into the space, I can get just enough to get real full and then sit back at the table and be like, what else we got? And then be able to pick something else up uh, as we are able to find our way through it. That What a cool series and a, an awesome collaboration. Part of why I wanted to be able to speak with you guys uh, this morning about this project. Now, I want to get to know each of you a little bit better. So I'm going to start with you, Matt, um, as we kind of get to know you. You come from quite the pedigree where you are the uh, Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies at Claremont, both those who have gone before you and that you are doing that now. Tell, tell me about how that came to be. Tell me about why you care so much about this, this, this history thing. Tell me a little bit more about you. Sure. Yeah, happy to. Uh, so I received my PhD uh, 10 years ago now um, in American religious history from Georgetown University, um, a fine kind of Catholic pedigree. And I did a lot of uh, Catholic studies while I was there. I, I read the entirety of Augustine's The City of God, which those of you, yeah, Joe was nodding, right? That thing is, that thing is a doorstopper. Um, but for all of that, my primary interest at Georgetown um, was not really at the time in Mormonism. I, I had presented a few papers at the Mormon History Association by the time I graduated, but my dissertation was on Protestant evangelicalism. Um, I was interested in the divergence between what, what's called today um, mainline Protestantism and Protestant fundamentalism um, in the early 20th century, and that was what my dissertation was about. I, anyway, I have perceived myself to be primarily a historian of evangelical Protestantism. I did, though, um, thanks to the good graces of one who came before me at the Howard W. Hunter chair, Richard Bushman, have the opportunity right after I graduated to write a book called The Mormon People, The Making of an American Faith. This was a, intended to be a short introduction to the history of the church for lay audiences published by Random House. And it, it was a wild story. Um, I got a call from a senior acquisitions editor at Random House in June of 2011, and he told me that they wanted this book um, to be published before Mitt Romney became the Republican nominee for president in 2012. Um, and then Richard Bushman, he had approached Richard Bushman, asked him to write, and Bushman had turned him down, but had given him my name and said, try this guy. Um, so he called me and said, would you like to write this? Um, and I said, absolutely. And I had all these great ideas for how I would map it out. I told him I wanted it to be a history of the church in which Joseph Smith was a minor character. I wanted to look at the regular people who joined the church, right? And what, what was it that all of these um, early American farmers saw in this new religion? What, what appealed to them about it? Not, you know, the kind of top-down story. 
And the editor told me, well, that, that sounds like a wonderful idea, but we need uh, this. And this was near the end of June. And he said, but we need this book by Labor Day. <laughs> in 10 weeks, go for it. And I said, I don't think I can, unfortunately. So, uh, but I wrote it anyway. Um, it was a rather traditional history of the church and what I could do in 10 weeks. Um, but that really kind of got me, I think, really into, into the center of, of, of these conversations about you know, Mormon history and, and into the Mormon History Association much more um, than I had been. And I uh, began doing more and more. I edited a volume with Kate Holbrook, who is a fine historian at the Church History Library called Woman in Mormonism. Um, which is a, a really large edited collection. Um, and then Joe and I have got involved in this. Um, and when this job at CGU opened, when Patrick Mason, the previous occupant, moved to Utah State University, I applied for it. Um, I was excited about it um, for a couple of reasons. Um, one being that we are trying to make Claremont Graduate University um, the real center um, in the world for the study of global Mormon history. Um, we are interested in both the LDS Church and the Community of Christ outside the United States, um, how both of these faiths are doing outside the United States, um, what it means for uh, people in Africa or South America to join these churches, what do they understand themselves to be joining. I mean, this is such an important story, I think, because both of these faiths, the LDS Church and the Community of Christ, are both somewhat stagnating in the global north. Um, that is, they're, they're, they're at replacement level, but they're not growing in the global north anymore. And that is not just true for them. That's not saying that either of these churches is doing something wrong. That is true for Christianity writ large. It's true for Anglicanism. It's true for Roman Catholicism, right? The place where Christianity is growing um, in the world right now is south of the equator. Um, and so the future, I think, of both the LDS Church and the Community of Christ is going to be in Africa. It is going to be in Latin America. And I think it really behooves members of those churches in the global north to understand that um, and to see, you know, how, um, what the future of their face is like. So I came to CGU to interview for this position. I, I felt very passionately about this idea. Um, and I suppose um, they saw my passion and they thought it was good and they offered me the job uh, two years ago. Yeah. Wow. Um, so wow. uh, for two years, um, it's been a great experience um, and I'm looking forward to many more. You know, to uh, make a call back to when we visited with uh, Patrick Mason, your predecessor, uh, my hope is, because they didn't with him, my hope is with you that they have a chair somewhere in your office that says Howard W. Hunter and it's the Howard W. Hunter chair. <laughs> Uh, he hasn't seen one of those yet. He's still hoping and holding out hope. You know, it does exist. I, I, I did receive the actual chair. Um, it is a wooden chair. Um, so my students usually sit in it more than I do. I sit in an office chair that reclines. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a such a tremendous story. And you talk about the passion that is infectious uh, that you have towards this. And, and I'm sure, you know, although this isn't the confines of this conversation, I look forward to being able to visit with you again in the future about some of those global things within the church that, um, that all of you out at Claremont are studying, learning, and, and being able to share with us and, and hope that you'll uh, feel welcome to come back and, and be yeah. able to share with that. As there's new discoveries or, or different theories or books written or, or whatever that is, know that you always have an open invitation with the one caveat of you have to sit in the Howard W. Hunter chair <laughs> while the interview occurs. So, uh, Joseph, let's talk a little bit about you. What, where, uh, you know, you're down at the BYU. Uh, I am. 
I, I want to know what was it about history, about this thought? What What is it that drew you to to do what it is that you do? And this is a little nugget for people that are watching this on uh, Patreon, uh, that are Patreon saints. He has about 2,000 books behind him. I need to know before we go any further, have you read every single word from every single one of those books? <laughs> no, I haven't. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm in my office this morning. So uh, the coll collection behind me is my philosophy collection. Um, which is actually worth mentioning because my training is actually not as an historian. I'm a philosopher. Uh, in fact, one of the reasons I think this is a fun project for Matt and me to be working together on uh, is precisely because uh, Matt brings the, the historical dimension and I bring the philosophical dimension. And at the intersection of that, we have something like the history of Mormon thought. Uh, so my own training is, yeah, has been in philosophy all the way through. I studied philosophy at BYU as an undergrad. Uh, I didn't plan on becoming a scholar. I actually uh, left the academy for a few years and did some other things, including a master's in library science. Uh, and at some point decided I wanted to bite the bullet and give it a shot uh, in the academy. And so went back and did a master's and a PhD in philosophy at the University of New Mexico um, and emphasizing 20th century thought in various guises, but especially French philosophy. My interest in philosophy from the beginning and certainly running all the way through my studies um, was uh, in the philosophy of interpretation, what philosophers call hermeneutics. Um, and, uh, and especially what's interesting there to me then is thinking about what it means to interpret texts like scripture, right? What, how do we do this kind of thing? Uh, so my work primarily has focused on scripture along the way. My dissertation was not. My dissertation was it was on issues of interpretation, but specifically things in set theory, mathematics, and this kind of thing, and how these are used to think about truth in interpretation. But, but my uh, but my work in the Latter Day Saint context has been almost uh, almost exclusively about uh, theology and scripture. And um, so I, uh, after I finished up there, I came to BYU. I've been here five years now, um, and uh, teaching in ancient scripture, and. Uh, but yeah, my interest in the history of the tradition in a lot of ways um, of the intellectual tradition is, in a, is because I'm hoping really we can get a sense um, for what has made it possible for theology to be so important in the 21st century. Traditionally, uh, at least for the last, say, half century or so, Latter-day Saints have claimed very loudly that they don't do theology, right? This is not something we do. We do, we do doctrine which is real truth or something, mm -hmm. or, we, uh, or we do history if we're intellectuals, right? We reflect on our past or something like that. But we tend to say that we don't do theology. That's just not what Latter-day Saints do. But what's begun to emerge in the last 10, 15, 20 years, and I've been able to sort of be on the front lines watching this happen, theology has emerged as a real intellectual force in the Latter-day Saint context. Um, Patrick Mason, since we've been speaking about him, wrote a blog post maybe two years ago that I like to cite because I want to use Patrick's authority on this, but he said the 20th century uh, was the century of Latter-day Saint history and the 21st century will be the century of Latter-day Saint theology. I think he's absolutely right. Uh, so for me, part of what's so important about uh, looking through the history of, uh, of Mormon thought is to sort out how we have approached our own intellectual projects uh, and what that means as now theology becomes a real and robust discipline uh, for, for Latter-day Saint thinkers. 
I want to take a break real quick, and when we come back in the second half of this episode, uh, I want to uh, get an idea of sort of timeline, when we're going to start seeing some of this stuff, uh, how people will be able to get it, uh, maybe some other nuts and bolts about uh, how this came about, uh, and anything else I come up with as we come back Mm -hmm. in the second block of The Cultural Hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. A busy, full summer from Best DJ in Utah. Go to BestDJinUtah.com. Why, that is me, Richie T., and I would love to be able to play music at your upcoming wedding or maybe you're having a company party, or maybe you're thinking already for the holiday party, whatever it is that's on your schedule, you should get the number one highest rated DJ for the state of Utah. Now, I know you're thinking, I don't even live in Utah, Richie. Would you ever do an event in Washington State? Oh, I've already done that before. Would you ever do an event in California? Been there too. How about Louisiana? Uh Uh-huh. Texas? Yes. Point is, uh, you know, you, you throw shekels my way, I'll come to wherever you're at. We could even combine it and make it an episode of the cultural hall mind blown if you are in need of a dj at all or someone in your families get married would like to be able to talk to me i would love to be able to talk to them it's best dj in utah.com hi friends dan the laptop man here from pc laptops i get a lot of emails with feedback from customers here's one dear dan i just had the best experience ever i bought a computer from shane at your state street store I asked several what I thought were really stupid questions. Shane was super courteous and made me feel comfortable through the whole process. People need to understand how important it is to support a local company, especially when your experience is so good. PC Laptops really does love me. Signed, satisfied. I love hearing feedback like that. It really just gives me the chills. It's the whole reason why I got into the computer business in the first place. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop for as low as $7.99, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. That means if anything goes wrong, we're going to take care of you. Just check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. At PC Laptops, we really do love you. Here in the second half of the Cultural Hall, I would encourage you, if you are not yet a Patreon subscriber, go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. You not only get to see the great videos, but you get to get the episodes as soon as they are recorded. You get to hang out with other people who nerd out uh, about these great episodes, just like I do, and just like Matt and Joseph do as well. It's patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. Uh, remember, there's the three tiers there, the Celestial, the Terrestrial, and the Telestial that you can join and help this continue on now uh i have to then go back you guys matt joseph uh to that that uh that fateful night in provo utah at the slab pizzeria where (laughs) you know some guys would meet up and they'd have a slice and they'd talk about the latest game they'd talk about you know 
what oh at home the old the old lady she's coming after me you know those kind of things and you guys are sitting down and thinking i wonder what it really was that drove the saints to be able to believe against all like just this <laughs> deep massive conversation was there something to the collaboration or the conversation between the two of you that felt heightened or enlightened or like um like mission driven. So I guess I'm kind of asking for a spiritual component of it, or is this strictly academic? I'll go with you first, Matt. Yeah, no, I, I, oh boy, I wouldn't call us enlightened particularly. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly it's born of two things, right? It's born, I think of just of a general interest in what academics do, which is essentially kind of pulling things apart and seeing why they tick. Um, why is the church the way it is right now? You know, how did we get to this place? Um, um, where are we going? Questions like that are why people go to graduate school. That's why I did. I think it's probably why Joe did as well. Um, but secondly, right, there's also a sense here that this is a um, not simply an academic project, which is to say not simply of interest to intellectuals, to people who like to read books, right? To people who want footnotes and flip back to the ends of the books to see what sources are cited. Um, there's also a sense here, right, that this is, a, that we are not simply chronicling something, but we're part of a project that is building something. We're not just studying something, but we're putting something together. We are trying here um, to build out um, what some of our authors have called a canon, of Mormon in the broad sense, intellectual life. Um, who are the important people who have shaped what this religious tradition is? Um, and by determining that, we can determine where we have been and look forward to where we might be going as a group of thinkers, right? Those of us who are both members of this tradition and also um, academics within it, intellectuals within it, I can kind of feel that dual responsibility. We're citizens of the academy, but also we are members as well, and we want to see we want to see the intellectual life, um, and more broadly, I think the, the the life of all people in this tradition to be to flourish. Um, and this project can do, we think, maybe both. Um, Joe, maybe you've got something to throw in there. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I'd say two things. So one is that. Um, Take the case of Bruce R. McConkie, and I think it illustrates the two sides of it really well, right? So for me, at least, on the one hand, I am just intellectually fascinated by a figure like Bruce R. McConkie. What's happening in American Christianity in the middle of the 20th century such that there can emerge this strong program of normative, top-down, doctrinal imposition? Uh, and how, yeah, how does that tell me something about sort of the, just the very life of religion in America in the mid 20th century, but also as, uh, as someone sitting in the pews, uh, or maybe even better, sitting in the Sunday school setting, right, and hearing someone quote Bruce R. McConkie, I have questions, right? And I want to make sense of the role he's uh, played and how he came to think as he did, and how it's taken the authoritative shape it once had, and how that's kind of dissipated over recent years. All of that drives me at a spiritual level as well. I want to understand uh, where I'm sitting um, as a believer as well as as a thinker. So the second thing I'd say is uh, sort of clarifying that second, the the, the spiritual side of that for me. Um, there's a very famous uh, phrase or formula or slogan, you could say, 
from a 12th century British monk, St. Anselm of Canterbury, uh, that uh, what it is to do theology is to be it's faith-seeking understanding. And in a lot of ways, that's what this kind of thing looks like for me, right? I'm a very much a believer and a member of a, of a religious community invested in serious ways, but I'm driven to make sense of it and to find ways to, to sort out how I fit into a really complex both sociologically complex and historically historically complex situation. And this kind of thing fires me up spiritually as much as it does intellectually. Is there also a component, and I know based on some of the names that you have shared as to books that will be in this series, that it doesn't apply. Um, But we we often hear about representation, and especially here in the 21st century where you know, we're hearing more about um, early black saints of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or we're hearing a, more and more about um, the the speeches and the women uh, in the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, is it is it also um, creating a space for those of us who, when we go to worship, we go, well, no, I believe, but I don't know that I believe like all the rest of these people. Who are Who are those that I can read about? that have also felt differently, but have been able to have that space um, within this fold? Yeah, two things um, there, and I'll take the second one first. We all tend to, and I think it's human nature, to simply assume that the way things are now is the way they've always been. The way things are now is normative, right? It's normal. It's what it's what this thing should be and always has been. And one of, I think, the, the aims of this series is to explore just how capacious Mormonism actually is, um, how all of these different people imagined what this tradition was um, and how you know, many different visions I think there have been and how our, our current present is the product of mul- multiplicity, not singularity, um, that there have been many Mormonisms and there remain many Mormonisms. Um, then to your second question, I think that's that's a really good one and also and also important. Um, it's somewhat of an accident, simply that how quickly our, our certain writers wrote and how quickly we got certain proposals in that our first three volumes, I think, really um, on Eugene England of Artist Fisher and Lowell Bennion are all about three white members of the church from the mid 20th century. Those authors were simply the authors who dove in and wrote most quickly. Um, But we do, right, and and this goes back to something I said um, at the top, Um, we do not envision this book simply to be about people who sat in offices writing formal volumes of theology um, like Bennion and like England did, um, right? We are hoping to push the boundaries both of who is normally considered an important Mormon thinker, um, but also push the boundaries of what thought is more generally. Um, and to that, and I'll cite again, you know, the, the volume we have under contract about Minerva Tykert. Um, we are also in talks with an author to produce a volume about George P. Lee. Um, we are looking as well um, for, um, for volumes on important Latin American and particularly Mexican Latter-day Saints. Um, there is one um, we're talking to someone about, about uh, Margarita Bautista. Um, who was maybe one of, one of the kind of towering intele- um, intellectual figures of Latin American Mormonism. Um, so we, we are hoping, right, to, um, to attract more volumes like this. We're actively pursuing authors to write volumes on things like this. And, you know, there are some announcements, I think, coming down the pike 
to the same before too long. What I love about what you just said is I didn't recognize all of those names. And so part of me would be like, oh, man, why don't I know what that name is? But then the other thing is, as I'm like, I'm so excited. I can't wait to be able to find out who in the world, you know, George Lee is. And maybe that's very telling that I don't know who that is, at least not at this moment, as I say this out loud, to, to, know, to more, know more about that individual and these other individuals who have shaped. And to have that expansion, you know, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to know that I'm also going to learn about others uh, you know, Joseph Smith III. I've recently uh, taken a, a very long personal deep dive into uh, David Smith, the uh, child of Joseph and Emma that was conceived before he was martyred and then, you know, found himself at the end of his life committed to um, an asylum. Like, I am, I am fascinated within this, and these are just stories. These are individuals that, that come to life to me when individuals like yourself and others are able to say, hey, this is important, and here's why, and we are going to let you guys have it and do with it what you will. Uh, Joe, is there one in particular that as you look at this series that you're like, man, hang tight, guys, the uh, this the book on uh, this one, and I know you can't pick a favorite, but I'm hoping that maybe you can tease out a couple other ones. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, some of these figures, uh, yeah, I mean, part of what's exciting is exactly having a volume on someone like George P. Lee, or uh, we, we've got conversations about a volume on Chieko Kazaki, for instance, these are, these are volumes that I, I hope will just sort of make people sit up and go, Oh, I, you know, I never would have thought about a book on that figure. Right. And, uh, and what does that mean about the tradition and so on? Uh, I'll be honest though. I mean, the, for me, the thing that I hope, uh, or the thing that I, I think will make us sit up and, and, and really rethink some things are volumes on traditional traditional figures, right? Traditionally authoritative figures and, and tackled in terms of their thought. And so there's a tradition in, in the world of Mormon studies of writing sort of critical biographies, if you will, right? Or critical analysis of so-and-so. So, -and -so. so um, let's show you what this person kind of really amounted to or something like that. And it's, it's pretty easy to write a critical analysis of someone like Ezra Taft Benson. And well, here's his political commitments and here's how he's involved in the John Birch Society and that can all look very scandalous and so on. Uh, or on the other hand, to write a, just a kind of glowing look at everything Gordon B. Hinckley did, a kind of biography on the other hand. But uh, because we're approaching these uh, figures as thinkers very specifically and asking what they contributed, what I hope will really be eye-opening is take a figure like Bruce R. McConkie or Joseph Fielding Smith uh, and, and, and watch someone sort of reconstruct uh, the architecture of their thought. Uh, what were they reading? Who did they read and uh, what intellectual currents shaped them? So for me, uh, this is what I'm dying for, is I want to see someone really show me who someone like Bruce R. McConkie was. Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to learn about figures that we've paid too little attention to. Uh, but there's, I think we're going to get a lot from figures that we all think we know and we don't, we don't, begin, don't, don't begin to know. And we don't just need an expose. And we don't need a laudatory celebration. We need a real analysis of thought and contribution. I would add to that. I think uh, you know, this is what Joe is saying, I think, is really exciting to me, right? Because this does, I think, help us understand why the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is where it is now in 2021. Is looking at the influence of someone like Bruce R. McConkie, who feels just so kind of massive and important and significant on the land on our landscapes. But as Joe says, no one has ever really studied him. 
and thought about, you know, why did McClunky think the way he did? How was it that McClunky became as influential as he did, right? Not, and not simply kind of looking at him and saying, oh, well, he's there and taking that for granted, but really um, pulling his legacy apart. And then also critically asking, why is it in the mid-1980s that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was simultaneously the church in which Bruce R. McClunky cast such a shadow, but was also the church of Chieko Okazaki, um, and was also the church that was beginning to hang Minerva Tiger paintings on the walls of its chapels, and was also the church of George P. Lee, who was the first Native American general authority um, of the church, right? Um, we can kind of, I think, it, it feels a bit, and this is not to be a derogatory metaphor, although it may come across as such, like tipping the rock of the church over and seeing all of the life that is teeming beneath that rock, right? All of the different people who are moving in this church, who are interacting in this church, who are arguing um, and talking about why the church is so significant to such distinct figures as McConkey and Okazaki. Right. What did they both see in this the legacy of Joseph Smith Jr. Um, that lit both of them on fire in somewhat different ways? Um, and as we put volumes of all of these people side by side on our bookshelves, um, we can see the kind of multiplicity that Mormonism is, both for members of this church, but also for other um, faiths in the Mormon tradition. I love the visual of, of the rock. And uh, everything that's that's underneath it, I think that's pretty fascinating. I also, uh, because I hadn't had the opportunity to Google it yet, and I didn't want to be rude as we were chatting, that you dropped who George P. Lee was, so I didn't have to keep going. <laughs> now, who is, ah, yes. And I, I think I would have known it or come around to it, but I appreciate that you just gifted that to myself and everyone else who's listening going, okay, that's who that is. Uh, is, is this a series that we'll be able to... Um, yeah, I'm interested in all the series, and I'll take every book that comes out, send them to me as they come out. How are people going to be able to to purchase and then get them? Maybe you take that, Joe. Yeah. Um, so we've uh, we have worked very hard with the press and uh, and with our uh, acquisitions editors to make sure that we have a, a reasonable price point, and it will be. It'll be very affordable, um, and we're really thrilled about that because yeah, you end up dropping a few dozen volumes and put the point at 39.95 and who's buying the series. Yeah. But uh but these will be affordable and we're hoping that that means that people really will just pick up the whole series as they come out. Um at University of Illinois Press is very good at working with with outlets like Deseret Book and BYU Bookstore and all of those kinds of things so they'll be easy to find for the most part. There may be some of the figures are a little more controversial or a little edgier if you will. So some of those may be harder to find at your average Latter-day Saint bookstore. But I think uh, many of them, most of them, will be uh, will be able to find there. Of course, Amazon is easy, and Illinois has its own website that people can buy things through. So these should be very easy to find. And uh, yeah, I mean, part of the value of it being a series, I think, is precisely that uh, there will be those who find the series because they go, oh, wow, a volume on so-and-so. That's really interesting. I want to read about James E. Talmadge or something like that. Uh, but then once they realize it's a series, they're like, okay, so I don't know who on earth Vardis Fisher is, but the series seems good. So hopefully this, the very fact that it's a series means that it'll draw attention to some of these figures um, uh, because it's worth having the whole set. And, and as you mentioned, you know, those first three done pretty quick, when are we going to get 
Volume One, Series One, Edition One. It's the it's the original Superman of this whole <laughs> series. When when will that hit shelves or Amazon? Volume One um, will be the Eugene England uh, book, and he is, I think, a great figure to start a series like this off with uh, because he is so widely known and widely beloved um, and does signal, I think, a lot of what we're trying to do with the series. Um, that will be out um, this fall, either October or November. Um, the Vardis Fisher volume will be close on its heels. Um, next year, uh, we're thinking the Lowell Benyon volume will be out. And from there, it's off to the races. There are, there are another dozen or so under contract right now. Um, so those will start coming out, I think, probably end of next year and soon after. Um, we are hoping, right, that we will publish pretty steadily two or three volumes a year um, through the end of the decade. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it will be um, pretty extensive by the time we are done. And I appreciate, Joe, your comments about the affordability factor. I see in your background a couple of the Joseph Smith papers novel or <laughs> volumes, and I want those so bad. I just I don't have a small fortune, so I just have to enjoy them online uh, the way that I think a lot of people do. But the tremendous work from you and other individuals. I don't want to. I I say that sort of jokingly. I don't want to undervalue the work that's gone on. But, I mean, affordability is a factor for so many people to have this uh, be tangible in their home. Uh, I want to start wrapping this out a little bit, gentlemen. And I would be curious, we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall three questions. Uh, and, and I would ask those of you at this point, though I don't know that I know the, where this may go with, uh, with one or with both of you. Um, when, when we talk about, um, and this is not one of the questions, I'm just sort of couching it, um, hedging my bets actually for a minute. But when we talk about studying Mormon thought, Mormon history, that can be a difficult road to hoe for some people, whether it's challenging, whether it's, you know, unearthing some things, uh, maybe it's sitting in the uncomfortable, maybe it's, you know, finding all the creepy, crawly and critters that are underneath that rock. How, how has that journey uh, been for you in your faith up to this point? Uh, start with you, Joseph, and then you, Matt. Yeah, uh, I mentioned earlier Anselm's slogan, uh, faith seeking understanding. That's what, that's what it's been for me. I mean, for me, my rootedness in the faith came first and then an intellectual hunger as a result. Um, and so for me, it's, it's never actually been a very rocky road. It's been just a kind of deepening of an understanding of where I'm at and what it means to be where I'm at. Uh, but the but the place I stand as a, in, as a position of faith is one that I I I have independent of my intellectual endeavors, right? My intellectual endeavors are just filling out and deepening deepening that. So for me, yeah, this is uh, it's just a kind of constant thrill <laughs> to be sorting out the the thing that I'm so deeply committed to on sort of existential grounds. What about you, Matt? Um, it's somewhat different for me, actually. It has been. My road has been somewhat rockier than Joe's. And and for me, I think really, um, I, I almost reverse that Anselm line because for me, the understanding, I think, brought a desire for commitment. And particularly, I think my training as a historian and particularly a historian of religion has the basic fundamental principle of history as an academic discipline. I'm in history as an academic discipline is is broader than what many people think it is. You know, many people just think, oh, history, I know history, you know, George Washington crossing the Delaware, the Civil War, so on and so on. Uh, but history is really a, like any other intellectual discipline, is an organized set of principles for understanding, 
for gaining knowledge. How do we gain knowledge in the world? That's the basic question of academia. And history has its own set of rules for doing that, just as philosophy has its own set of rules. And one of the basic rules for history as a discipline is, as my um, the very first graduate course I ever took, the professor put it, change over time. Um, history is premised on the notion that there is change um, and that change happens chronologically. Um, and I think in studying religion in particular, you know, applying that principle, the principle of change over time, and the principle also that change is something that can be known, that we study, that it's understandable and comprehensible. Change just doesn't happen willy-nilly, that there are certain um, logics of change, and those logics can be known. That, I think, as I turn to the history of religion, and the history, perhaps, of the Church's Christ of Latter-day Saints has been very illuminating because I approach that history with the premise that change is going to happen, um, that change is built into the system, that it's a principle of the system. And I think so much of the grapple that so many people have with the history of the Church, so much of the anxiety that produces it is, in fact, derived from change. Hmm. Right, and wondering why does change happen? Why is the church today not the same as it was in the time of Joseph Smith? Why were people doing weird things that we don't do anymore? Right, and for me, I'm approaching this as a historian. I presume that that's going to happen. I, I think yeah, change is inevitable. The only question is why. Um, and and the notion then becomes change is not actually a a bug. It's not a sign that something is wrong. Um, it is actually a feature. It's the way things are supposed to be. Um, and in fact, if we look at you know Christianity in total, right? Um, Christianity as a faith is premised on the notion that Jesus Christ entered a certain place at a certain time, and he wore certain clothes, um, and he ate certain food. Um, right? It's not universal. It's particular. And the the any Christian faith then is not going to be universal. It's never going to be changeless. It's always going to be about a certain time and a certain place, and things will evolve. Um, so it is for me. I think my, my I think my desire to be part of this religious community, my belief in a religious community, is premised on the notion uh, that I derive from my training. Um, this idea of change and of history as a discipline really provides a ground for me. Um, to want to be religious, not to walk away from being religious. The two different perspectives in the way that you both answered those questions is why I think people are really going to like what comes out of this series and the collaboration between the two of you. Uh, and I appreciate both of you guys sharing. Those three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall are, and I'll ask them one to both of you, then two to both of you, and then the third to both of you. Uh, but whoever wants to go first certainly can. Is The first question is: is, do you have a calling? And if so, what is it? Um, I guess I'll go first. Um, I do. Uh, I'm right now. I'm teaching the uh, priest's quorum in my ward, so uh, which has been wild under COVID circumstances, but it worked out decently. Yeah, so that's my calling. Matt. Yeah. Uh, so I um, was elders quorum instructor. Um, I just still about two weeks ago picked up another, so I now have two colleagues. I'm also the Sunday school president wow. in my ward. I, I'm sorry that I didn't call you President Bowman throughout this entire interview. Then, <laughs> you know, I feel like often the Sunday School president is kind of president, you know, by you know, it's a it's a token calling yeah. in some ways, which is why I can do two at once. Uh, if you guys could pick a calling for yourselves, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? And we'll start with you, Joe. Uh, boy, that's a good question. I mean, I do love teaching gospel doctrine, just because it's 
uh, it's a great deal of fun. But but probably actually the most rewarding calling I've had, and it's just not possible where I live now that I'm in Provo, was teaching early morning seminary. That was the best calling I think I've ever had. So fun to work with kids and and far enough from the center of how things run in the seminary program that I could kind of do what I wanted. <laughs> right? uh, so that was a lot of fun. But yeah, I don't know if I've got a good answer. <laughs> Matt? Oh, no. You know, actually, Joe, I, I was worried you were going to steal my answer. Um, I was... <laughs> Uh, before I moved to California, I was a gospel doctrine teacher for five years, um, and I would happily do that till the end of my life. The, the last question we ask everyone, and we ask you to interpret it however you may, uh, and whoever wants to go first certainly can, but the question is, is what is your favorite part of your faith? That is a good one, uh, but I, I will go ahead and take a stab at it. Um, I think... For my own faith, I think, but also um, for faith generally, my favorite part is um, the excitement of being challenged by things that are unfamiliar to me regularly. And I, I say that, you know, in kind of abstract terms intentionally, but and that can extend, I think, from um, just in a ward, right, um, in my ward, um, being confronted with and having to work with and having to serve people who are very different from me, um, who I might not ever associate with. And that's very rewarding and that stretches me. But also I think that, that, that principle can be extended all the way to grappling with ancient texts from a culture that I do not understand and trying to make sense about how these might be applicable to me in my life in the 21st century. Um, and I think, you know, both of those, uh, the, the whole spectrum pushes me to grow, um, to consider that I might be wrong about things, um, that there are parts of my life and my understanding of the world that are not as well developed as they could be. Um, and I find in my faith, I think, the opportunity um, to develop myself in all of those ways. Yeah, and thanks, Matt, because that gives me time to think as well as being profound. Um, I think I think in the end my favorite thing uh, my favorite thing about my faith is um, the opportunities I have to read scripture carefully with others. Um, uh, in fact, my wife and I have occasionally not uh, not always but pretty consistently held um, study groups uh, scripture in our home on Friday evenings. Matt's actually been there a couple of times, um, and uh, reading scripture carefully with others is just it's so rewarding for me. Other people, and, and maybe this kind of resonates with what Matt was saying, but other people reading forces me to see things I'm not seeing in the text, right? If I just go and read on my own, I'm looking in the mirror, so to speak. But when I read with others, I, I just find so much more there. And there's something about the community Zion spirit of doing it together uh, that, uh, that really, really fires me up. So I think that's the thing I enjoy deepest. Well, I got to tell you guys, I appreciate your time certainly, and uh, and what you guys are bringing to fruition. It's introductions. Cue the timpani. Cue the cornet. Here we go. Introductions. <laughs> to Mormon thought. Uh, 
uh, it is our plan to uh, work alongside with the folks at University of Illinois Press uh, to be able to do a separate episode for each of the books as they come out and let people know what they're about, how they can get them, get to know the authors and also the individuals that are spotlighted and highlight within the book. Uh, Joseph and Matt, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you are not healthy <laughs> enough to listen to it this week, that you will be healthy enough to listen to it next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. 